turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, beginning in chapter 9, book of Hebrews, beginning in chapter 9. When our daughter, uh, Callie, was born, we were planning to have the delivery through natural childbirth, which at the time seemed like a... uh, uh, something very unique, but what was, what was even more unique was this idea that I was going to be allowed into the delivery room. They had this thing called a birthing room where the father would actually come in and be a part of the delivery, well, as much as you could be anyway. And uh, as Cindy was prepped for the delivery, I was stopped by the door with this big sign that said, keep out. And... Uh, I was a little apprehensive to go in anyway, but that just kind of reconfirmed things. I thought, oh boy, what are we getting into here? But she insisted I was going to be there, so I needed to be there. But uh, before entering, I had to go through this elaborate ritual. I don't know if you I know what I'm talking about. I had to put on this backward paper pajama, and then I had to put on a paper hat as well, and I had to spend five minutes washing uh, my arms and stuff, clear up to my elbows. Why? Why was all that necessary? After all, I consider myself a, a reasonably clean person overall. I, I think I'm a good person. And uh, what more was needed? Why did I have to go through all of that? It was because of something I couldn't even see. But if I allowed it into the birthing room, if I allowed it into that room, it would have contaminated the entire delivery. It was something called germs. You know, there's a place in the Bible like that as well. It's a place that was restricted, a place with a big keep out sign. It was a place that only the high priest could enter, and then only once a year. And then only after an elaborate washing ritual that he had to do. It was the Holy of Holies. It was where the very presence of God would come to speak to his people. And that big keep out sign was in the form of a great veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And just like I couldn't step into the delivery room on the basis of my own sense of cleanliness, men were not allowed to come into the presence of God either based on their own sense of cleanliness or goodness or righteousness. Except the contamination that caused this restriction was not some microorganism. It was something far more insidious, far more deadly, far more pervasive than germs. It was something called sin. No amount of scrubbing or special wardrobe could remove that contamination. It would require something much, much, much more costly than that it would require the blood of the Lamb of God. Well, hopefully you've brought your uh, Bibles, and if not, there's one right in front of you. And again, you've found your place now in Hebrews chapter 9. We want to pick it up here this morning in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6, as we continue our study of this fascinating and yet challenging epistle. The author has, uh, in verses 1 through 5, last time we looked at, he's described the tabernacle, and the place where that's the place where God met with his people. And you'll recall that the design of the tabernacle and the furnishings pointed to Christ. 
right? They were all pointing to something that was going to come later and his future ministry as our great high priest in a heavenly sanctuary. So the tabernacle, we found out last time, was a picture. It was a symbol of something that was coming later. That's something we know is Christ. And uh, once inside the Holy of Holies, each of the furnishings represented a ministry of Christ as well as our great high priest. Remember the showbread pointed to Christ as the bread of life, right? Remember Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And then uh, the lampstand pointed to Christ as the light of the world. That's right. I am the light of the world. In uh, John uh, chapter 6, I believe. The altar of incense, remember, represented the prayers of intercession on behalf of God's people that were being offered up by the mediators, the priests. And then the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top of it that pointed to, remember, they would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. That was also called the seat of propitiation. Remember, propitiation uh, is a big word, but what does it mean? It means to turn away God's wrath. To turn away, or turn what? To <laughs> okay. To turn away God's wrath. God was the one who prescribed these things in great detail. Remember, He showed Moses, right? This is what it's going to look like. And then there's, remember, we said there's fifty chapters, right? All about the tabernacle. Two on creation, fifty on the tabernacle. So obviously, it represented something of extreme significance uh, to God. We're finding out what that is. But the design of the tabernacle also emphasized that there were barriers there, right, to those who wanted to worship God. The outer court, remember, separated the Gentiles from the Jews, right? You couldn't get in. There was a, there was a you know, Gentiles had to stay out. Only the Jews could come in into the outer court. And then the inner court separated the Levites from the non-Levites. You had to be a Levite then. So, you know, the crowd kept getting thinner, right? Uh, and then the first veil separated the priest from the non-priests. The second veil separated the high priest from the common priests. It was, re- it was a restricted earthly sanctuary to those who were seeking God. Everything in there was pointing to Christ, who would open up this relationship that God was seeking, but the design And even the furnishings represented that you couldn't just come into God's presence any way that you chose. That there was very detailed things that needed to be accomplished. That no person, no matter how much their desire was to worship God, could determine on their own how they were going to approach a holy God. They didn't get to decide well, I know God says this, but I think I'll just stroll into the Holy of Holies. I know you guys are all doing that, but I, I, I don't, that, you know, my God is a God of love, so I think I'll just walk right in. No. No, not quite. There's a great deal of irony in the architecture and the furnishings of the ta- tabernacle, which was always meant to show God's people the limitations of worship in the first covenant. Andrew Murray in his commentary on Hebrews states, in the most holy place, God would dwell, but man could not enter. In the holy place, men might seek to enter to serve God, but God didn't permanently dwell there. 
the veil was a symbol of separation between a holy God and a sinful man and that those two could not dwell together. Something had to happen first. The tabernacle expressed the union of two apparently conflicting truths. God called man to come and to worship and to serve him, and yet he could not come too near because the veil showed that there was meant to be a a barrier between them or that there was a barrier. It's in the same way. Love calls the sinner near, but their own lack of righteousness keeps them back. The Holy One instructs Israel to build him a tabernacle in which he will dwell, but then forbids them from entering his presence there. Do you see the irony? Why would God do that? The entrance of the high priest once a year for a few moments was just a faint picture, if you will, that a time would come when access to the Holy of Holies would be given that something was going to change. It was foreshadowing that there would be a time when the worshiper would be allowed into God's presence in the fullness of time, in the fullness of righteousness and love would be revealed in the perfect harmony in Christ in whom these shadows and types and symbols are all fulfilled. Well, let's begin our look at the restrictions of worship. That's what we want to focus on here today, the restrictions of worship. Last week we looked at the regulations, right, or the rituals. Now we want to look at the restrictions of worship in the earthly tabernacle, and then perhaps God will give us just a little glimpse of what his plan has been through it all. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask him to bless our time together in his word. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for your wonderful truth. I thank you for each and every one that you've brought here this morning. Lord, again, we pray for those who cannot be here, either through travel or illness. Lord, I pray that you would comfort and encourage them, keep them safe, Lord, and return them to us again. But Lord, for those who are here today, those who have brought here today, I pray you'd give us open hearts and open minds to your wonderful truth. Lord, we thank you that we have your truth. And Lord, at times it encourages us, but at times it exhorts us or even rebukes us. I pray, Lord, we would take that with the spirit in which it is intended which is to transform us more and more into the image of your Son. Thank you, dear Lord, again, for all you do and the grace that you shed in our lives. Be with us now in this hour. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let's look here, shall we, in verses uh, 6 and 7. I want to read those, and then if you have your notes in front of you, we can fill those in as we go. Now, when these things have been so prepared... The priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Point number one, we find in verses six and seven, worship in the old covenant was restricted and inadequate. Uh, 
Worship in the Old Covenant was restricted and inadequate. So in verses 6 and 7, now we move away from the architecture and the furnishings of the tabernacle. That's what he means here. He said, when these things have been so prepared, what are those things? Well, everything he was talking about in verses 1 through 5, right? The altar of incense, the lampstand, the table of showbread, the bread that was on them, right? All of that. He moves now from that to the priestly service and the inadequacies of worship that was happening in the tabernacle. So... We've seen the furnishings. Now he's moving to the priest and what they were doing. The first inadequacy that we see in verse 6 comes from the outer tabernacle as they conducted worship. And I want you to notice, first of all, all the constant repetition that was going on every single day in the tabernacle. The regular ministries of the priests that were done in the holy place were as follows. First of all, they had to make sure that the lamps were filled every day. That was meant to be a perpetual light in there. And so they had to keep making sure that those were filled and that the wicks were trimmed and that it stayed burning. That that, that whole time, they were never allowed to be out. And then uh, secondly, they burned incense on the golden altar, right? They, they had to make sure that the coals were kept up and then they were putting the incense on there. Those were the prayers and thick smoke would fill the entire tabernacle. Right? Those represented the prayers of the people through the priests, their mediator. And they had to replace the loaves of bread every Sabbath. Every Sabbath day, they had to take those 12 loaves out. And not really out, they had to do what with it? Eat it. They had to eat it in the holy place. Okay, And so once a week, they would go in there and replace the loaves. And then they could not just take it out because that was consecrated bread. It was bread set aside for the Lord. And so they would have to eat it in the holy place. You can find that in Leviticus 24. Remember the uh, incense, that's what Zechariah was doing in uh, Luke. Remember chapter 1, when the the angel Gabriel came to him, right, and said, uh, he was announced to him that he was going to have a son. Anyway, uh, the emphasis here is on constant repetition. Everything that was needed daily in worship, every day, Over and over again, the same act of worship was required. The work of the Levitical priest was never done. It was constantly going there, constantly going all the time. The second thing I want you to notice in this outer tabernacle was the worship of God was restricted even for the priests. Think about that for a second. Every day the priest would come into the outer tabernacle, that's called the holy place, to serve and to worship God and to have some indirect fellowship with God in the ministry of the lampstand and the, and the altar of incense, right, and putting all of that on there. But it was also a constant reminder to every priest who walked into the holy place that God was just on the other side of that veil, and I couldn't walk in there. I could not come into his presence, yet he was right there. But I dare not walk in there. I dare not think of that. That second veil was a constant reminder that access to God was restricted. Not everybody could come in there, not even the priests. But the outer sanctuary, the holy place, was not only the area that demonstrated restrictions, it also demonstrated inadequacies. Look at verse 7. Again, into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. 
verse 7 shows us there's some additional restrictions and inadequacies of worship in the Old Covenant. But this time we move from the outer to the inner. We move from the holy place to the holy of holies. And only the high priest then could go into there and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on that because chapter 9 and 10, we'll be looking at that more in depth. But let me just give you a snapshot version, a cliff note version, if you will, of what went on in Leviticus 16. The priest, the high priest, would offer a sacrifice for his own sins first. Then he would enter the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of the bull on the mercy seat, or the seat of propitiation, and in front of it. And then he would go back out and slaughter one of the two goats. There were two goats that were set aside. One as a sin offering for, as a sin offering for the people. And then he'd take that blood back into the mercy seat of the one that was sacrificed. He'd go back and lay his hands on that scapegoat, confessing it over the sins of the people. Then he would lead the goat out into the wilderness, the scapegoat out into the wilderness. So the one that wasn't sacrificed, right? placing his hands, and then removing it from God's presence. Notice here that the author of Hebrews calls attention to the fact that the old way, that old worship, provided a way for forgiveness for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. That word ignorance, uh, as Brandon uh, read for us today, means unintentional, okay? unintentional sins. Now, we often think of sin in two different categories, right? Sins of commission, those are sins we commit against God's word, right? God commands us to do something and we, we don't, right? So we commit a sin. Our sins of omission, those are things uh, God, uh, that we omit, right? So one, one, in one we commit the sin, and the other one we omit doing something God tells us to do, okay? Uh, all right, so here we see another category of sins, sins of ignorance or unintentional sins. You see, because sin permeated every aspect of our being, we can indeed sin without even being aware that we have sinned. In part, the Day of Atonement was instituted to cover those sins that we commit and yet are unaware of. You see, those sins still have to be atoned for. And in the Old Testament, this is how you did it. The Day of Atonement was... I, I, Lord, I've confessed the sins I know I committed, the, the sins that you said I, I shouldn't do, but I, I'm convicted of those. I'm made aware of those, and I've confessed and repented of that, right? Through I made a sacrifice for those sins. And, Lord, if I've omitted doing something that you told me to do, Lord, I want to make sure I confess and repent of those and make a sacrifice for those. But what about the sins I don't even know that I may have committed? Because sin is still a barrier between us and God. So how... How am I going to atone for those if I don't even know that I did that? Well, of course, God already made the provision in the Day of Atonement. Would take care of all of those sins, first for the priest himself, and then for the rest of the body of Israel, for any sins that they weren't even aware that they sinned before God, and yet still needed to be atoned for. But what about the sins we commit intentionally? What about the sins where we say... You know, I don't care what God says. I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm just, gonna, I'm just going to do these things, and I don't really care. What he says, what, you know, 
what's really going to happen here? I, I reject that God says this. I don't agree with that, so I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to do that. Or worse yet, I'm just going to walk away from God. I've already heard the gospel. I've already said uh, that I believe. And I'm just going to move away from God and fall away from God for a while. What about those? Well, keep your place in Hebrews and turn to Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 15. Numbers, chapter 15, beginning in verse 30. Numbers 15, verse 30. But the person who does anything defiantly, you might have the word high-handed, right? Which means intentional. The person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord. That person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord... And broken his commandment, and that person shall be completely cut off. The guilt will be on them. Now, the law stated there was no sacrifice for sins that are intentional. Of course, there is a sense in which every sin stems from defiance to God, right? That's a proudness, right? A proud or haughty spirit. But the reference in Numbers seems to refer to this outrageous, blasphemous behavior that represented revolt or treason against God. It is a defiant, knowing rejection of God. A sin that's a betrayal of a former trust. A sin that despises God and holds him in contempt. For sins such as that, there was no sacrifice available in the Old Testament or the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews chooses his words carefully because he's already addressed that sort of sin, remember, in Hebrews chapter 6. Remember, the, those who have fallen away, that word is, is apostasy, which is where we get our word apostasy from. The word apostasy means to fall away. It's a deliberate, intentional walking away from God and never coming back. Remember, we looked at that in the warning passage in Hebrews chapter 6. Let's just turn back there for a second. Hebrews chapter 6. Right, the author says, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, the Messiah, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of instruction about washing and laying on hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Remember, we looked at all of those things. were all catechism things in Judaism that they were trying to go back to, right? And this we will do if God permits. Verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened or illuminated and have tasted the heavenly gift 
and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come and then have fallen away. There's our word. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. This is the person who walks away from God and never comes back. The person who has tasted right, the, the inner conviction of the Holy Spirit. They've been illumined to the words of the gospel. They understand it in their head, right? But they, they are this close. They're seeing the work of the Holy Spirit in those around them. They've tasted it, but yet never really truly believed. God says, you, you go up to that point, you're that involved, you're claiming that that's who you are, and then you fall away, what would be your means of salvation as you've crucified, the only, you've rejected your only means of help, which is to cry out to God and surrender your life to Christ. I remember that warning was very difficult as we walked through that. We're not talking about people who backslide for a while. We're talking about people who reject God and never come back. Look at, he's going to approach that again in verse ch- and chapter 10. Uh, sneak over there and look at verse 26. Someday we'll be in chapter 10. And if we look at uh, verse 26, he's going to come back to this idea again. For if we go on sinning, how? Willfully or intentionally. After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If you reject your only means of salvation, what on earth do you think is going to save you? Or better yet, what in heaven? Or who in heaven would save you if you reject your only means of salvation? but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and who has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That's a pretty direct passage, is it not? For those, if there's any here today who've professed Christ but never truly surrendered their life to Christ, that's a scary passage. When the Bible says it's scary, it's scary. So the Day of Atonement would have underscored to Israel a number of these truths, but it also demonstrated how pervasive sin is and the defilement of all the people, including the high priest. It also demonstrated to them that no one dared to enter into God's holy presence without the blood of an acceptable sacrifice. And it demonstrated that people must approach God only through the proper mediator, only through a high priest. And it demonstrated that if the proper sacrifice was offered, God's wrath would be 
propitiated or turned away or satisfied so that he would not judge our sins. But as glorious as all those truths were, the worship under the old covenant of the earthly tabernacle was inadequate. And the author is going to explain that in verses 8 through 10. So let's look at that. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. Point number two in your notes. Point number two, the Holy Spirit demonstrated that sinful men could not approach a holy God. The Holy Spirit demonstrated that sinful men could not approach a holy God. Notice, first of all, that the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us the meaning of the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. It tells us right here. The Holy Spirit was the one who signified us. It's the Holy Spirit who's teaching us. It's the Holy Spirit who's showing us, who's demonstrating to us what all this means. The Holy Spirit of God is the one who teaches us things that we can learn from the Old Covenant. This is one reason why we study the Old Testament here at, at PBC. It's the Holy Spirit who inspired all of Scripture, incidentally. All Scripture is both the Old and the New Testament. And it only makes sense that it's the Holy Spirit who gives us insight into his word in both the Old and the New Testaments. There are those who profess to be Christians who actually deny the Old Testament as a present active and inspired word for the church today. One well-known pastor recently just said, we need to forget the Old Testament. That's scary that a man of God would not understand that the same Holy Spirit that wrote the Old Testament, our New Testament, is the one who wrote the Old Testament. It's true we don't live according to the Old Testament as it, as it relates to our means of salvation. Christ has fulfilled all that. But to, to suggest that we can't grow in our faith in the Old Testament or from the Old Testament or that it's irrelevant today is to take away from the Word of God. Christians should not be advocating taking anything away which the Holy Spirit has declared to be God's holy word, especially pastors. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. <coughs> I can't imagine the Psalms or the Proverbs, or any other Old Testament book being something that believers should exclude from their daily lives. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. All right, I'll get off that hobby horse. Secondly, the text tells us in verse 8 that the Holy Spirit is signifying something in the design and the furnishings and even the rituals that were going on in worship. What was the Holy Spirit signifying? The text tells us he was signifying that the way into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God, had not been disclosed yet. In fact, as long as the outer tabernacle was still standing, there would be no access to God for his people. The common person, the child of God, could not come into the presence of God. 
They could not come into the presence of God. There was no fellowship like we were talking about in Sunday, uh, Sunday school. God created us in his image to serve and worship him. And because of sin, there's a barrier between us and God that has to be rectified. It has to be solved. It has to be atoned for. Could God's people get into the holy place? No. Only the priests from the tribe of Levi could do that. Could they get into the holy of holies? Well, not if they planned on living afterwards. Even the high priest, they had to tie a little rope around him, right? Had little bells there. <coughs> Make sure they could drag him out if he didn't atone for his own sins. The Holy Spirit was teaching the impossibility of access to God without a perfect priest and a perfect sacrifice in a perfect covenant. Without a Redeemer, without a Messiah, without a Savior, there is no access to God. And as long as that veil was separating the holy place, holy place from the holy of holies, sinful men would not know that they would know that they could not approach a holy God. As long as that big veil was there, as long as those veils were there in the outer tavern that entire time, we, it's the common followers of God, the believers of God would have a constant picture, if you will, that God's over there and we're over here and we can't go in there. Only these guys can go in here, but they can only go so far. And only one person can actually go into the presence of God and then only on one day a year and then only in a specific way and then carrying blood as a sacrifice, but not just any blood. It's a constant reminder there was no access to the presence of God under the old covenant for them. No access under the law. No access under Judaism. There was not then and there is not today. You cannot do enough good works to come into the presence of God. <coughs> Excuse me. You cannot determine on your own how you're going to come into the presence of God. You don't get to determine whether God declares you righteous or not based on something that you've done. You don't get to compare yourself with others and say, well, I think I'm better than them or they've done something I think is worse, or at least that's what my friends tell me. And so I must be good. They're bad. They're the ones who can't come into the presence of God, but I still can. That's called self-righteousness, which God abhors. That's what's meant by that text there. The Holy Spirit was shown by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as that first tabernacle was standing. <clears throat> Donald Guthrie puts it this way. The words, as long as the first tabernacle was still standing, seem to mean as long as approach is dependent on some type of ceremony or sacrifice or, rit or ritual, which barred all but the high priest from access to the presence of God. And even him, for all but one day of year, it's not without significance that the word is, is still standing, could literally be translated has standing. As long as that system has standing, as long as people think, well, that's how my sins are atoned for, or that's how God will know that I'm here, or that's how I could not really approach God, but others could do it for me. As long as that system's in place, the Word of God tells us the Holy Spirit is signifying there is no access to God for you. 
Move then to verse 9, which brings us to point number 3. Verse 9, let's look at that together. Which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Point number 3, gifts and sacrifices offered could not make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Gifts and sacrifices offered could not make the worshiper perfect in conscience for you taking notes. The author of Hebrews goes out of his way to say that all of those sacrifices offered could not cleanse your conscience from a sense of sin and guilt. No matter how many times, no matter how many sacrifices they brought in, they couldn't have walk away with a clean conscience. Why not? Well, as sinners... We have an inner conscience of guilt that keeps us from drawing near to God. We see this clear back in Genesis. Sin had that effect on the garden when Adam and Eve fled from the voice of God. When? After they had sinned. Remember, they were hiding over there. Fearful of the voice of God. What has that same effect on us today? When we know when we're not living for God. We know when we are in sin. We might sear our consciences so we can sleep at night, but it doesn't change the fact that we know in our hearts that we have sinned against a holy and righteous God. Year after year, remember, <clears throat> I mean, this, the design of the tabernacle was one, one restriction. The second veil was another But the major problem in the Old Covenant is that these restrictions kept worshipers from the presence of God. Year after year, you'd go down to Jerusalem with your goats and your calves and your heifers, and you had to see this ritual repeated over and over and over again. And the very repetition reminded you that there was no final forgiveness. That sin was covered, but what about on my way home if I sin again? So there's no complete forgiveness. There's only... Forgiveness for that one. There had to be something greater. There had to be something that was actually, would cleanse your conscience. The very repetition of these sacrifices again and again and again reminded you that you were still guilty. It could not cleanse your conscience of that. You still knew you were guilty. Okay, well that one's covered. But not about the one I just did. Well, do I got to wait till next year? To be sure, it's not as if the people in the Old Testament did not have their consciences eased by what went on in the tabernacle. They certainly did. But at the same time, while their consciences were eased, they were never perfected, to use the language of Hebrews. They were never complete. They were never had that sense of complete forgiveness that God wanted us to have. That is, their conscience was never completely put at ease. How could it be? Every day they stood there, the structure reminded you that the wrath of God uh, still needed to be addressed. And even though it, it was kept at bay, you still knew that if I didn't bring a sacrifice, then I could face the wrath of God if I didn't atone for that sin. Notice in verse 9, it says a symbol of the present time. He doesn't explain exactly what that means in our text here, but that word symbol is the word parabolo, which means, which is where we get our word parable. It's a, it's a word picture. 
The real meaning of the tabernacle can only now be understood in the light of the work of Christ. That's what that means. Only now do we understand what that symbolism meant. The tabernacle worship with all the provisions of bread and incense and offerings, with all the ornate tabernacle itself, with its altars, was all symbolic of a greater truth yet to come. It was meant to teach the people that what was going on in their inner life is what was still needed to truly free them from the sin's burden and give them unfettered, unhindered access to a living God. Point uh, number four in verse 10 now. Since they, re- since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Verse 10 answers why gifts and sacrifices could not make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Why not? First, they were all external. All we're doing is washing the outside. It's, it's like the, uh, the delivery room, right? I'm cleaning myself on the outside, right, for these germs, but... Really, inside is the problem, right? The inside are the microorganisms I'm carrying around in me, right? That's why access was restricted. The reason we couldn't come into the very presence of God is because of sin, which had permeated every aspect of us. No matter how much we scrubbed, no matter how many offerings we put or how many ceremonial washings we did, it didn't take care of the sin problem because the sin problem was in our hearts. We needed something different. Secondly, they were temporary. Notice it says in our text, they were imposed until a time of reformation. That word reformation means to set things right. To set things right. So these things were only happening until the time would God would set things right. Remember, this whole system was never intended to be forever. This whole tabernacle and sacrificial system and the law was never intended to be the way to have unfettered, unhindered access to God and have your sins forgiven forever, once and for all, through a once and for all sacrifice. It was just the fact that it had to be repeated annually showed that it wasn't complete yet. It was just put off guilt each year. It had to be done again and again. In other words, the Old Testament only dealt with external realities, not internal. That's why we needed a new high priest without sin, who didn't have to make atonement for his own sin, who would offer a sacrifice once and for all, chapter 7, verse 27 tells us. Once and for all, with continuing effects forever. One time, but with continuing effects forever. Under a new covenant that's not written on stone tablets, but written where? In our minds and in our hearts. Because that's where the real problem is, internally, not externally. And I read in the newspaper about a woman who lost both kidneys to disease. And for eight months, she lived on a dialysis machine. And pumped through the machine, her blood was kept clean of impurities. The machine was really taking the place of her non-functioning kidneys, temporarily. The article went on to tell how she had been disappointed three times as donors' kidneys were thought available for transplants and then refused. That transplant was her real hope. She was really only using the machine until real kidneys became available. You know, in a very real sense, that's what it's like for Old Testament saints, wasn't it? The sacrifices, like the dialysis machine, kept them going, but the real hope for life was that someday a cure would be found so I don't have to keep doing this thing, which isn't really fixing anything. 
Someday, transplanted life, transplanted life might deal with the sickness from within. Right? That she'd be available for a transplant and actually fix it from the inside out. But until then, the repeated sacrifices that they offered only was a constant reminder of how sick they still were. The sin that was still there that still had not been atoned for, or was atoned for temporarily, but then they're still carrying the guilt going forward. Then Jesus came to effect the cure. He came to deal with the poison of sin from within, not to cover it, to cleanse it. Jesus, the true sacrifice to which all the animal sacrifices had pointed, in one unique act, perfected forever, those of us set apart by God, by his death. You know, an interesting uh, phrase in Hebrews chapter 10 helps us get a better glimpse of what God's trying to communicate to us. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3, it says, In practice, however, the sacrifices amounted to an annual reminder of sin. Rather than removing the sense of being sinners and guilty in God's sight, the Old Testament sacrifices just reminded them of their helpless and guilty state before God. Again and again and again and again. How? How did that remind them? It reminded them in the same way that that kidney patient came to a dialysis machine to take another treatment. Every time she came to the machine to hook up, she knew it wasn't a cure. It just was a reminder of how sick she really was. She needed a transplant. She needed help from within, not outside. This outside cleansing was only temporary and a constant reminder that she was still very, very sick. And if she didn't get a cure for this, she was going to die. That machine that saved her life was a constant reminder of how near death really was. My friends, Jesus has come. That cure has been affected. And you and I are to be overwhelmed with a joyous sense of well-being. When it came to the Old Covenant, people had to continually be reminded that a day would come when the veil would be torn down and when Christ came to usher in the New Covenant and his blood. All of that was pointing to that day, that time. And on the day Christ died for the penalty of our sin, that curtain, that veil, which separated us from God because of sin, which symbolically hung in the tabernacle, was torn in two from top to bottom, not by human hands. There's no more veil to keep us from entering into the presence of God and having unhindered fellowship with him. However, if you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Christ, there's still a veil that remains, but you've put the veil there this time. You have the barrier between you and God. Sin does separate, but Christ has made the way to reestablish fellowship based on life eternal, which came through the death and resurrection of our great God and Savior. In Christ, we have been born from above. We're new creatures in Christ because we've been partakers of a heavenly calling and given life by him. We belong to a better covenant with an infinitely better high priest. May our consciences bear witness to this new life as we live it and understand that in this new life, we have the ability now to truly worship God as he intended. Do you realize that? 
There's no veil between you and God. You can come into God's presence any time that you choose as a believer. There's no barrier. There's no veil there. There's no furnishings you only hear about but never get to see that I'll point it to Christ. Since Christ came, all of that, you have unhindered, unfettered access to God. And most importantly, your sins have been forgiven forever. Forever. Well, let's live in that victory, shall we? And give him the glory. Well, we're out of time. Actually, past our time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for, uh, Lord, for the challenge from your word. Lord, last week we heard about the furnishings and how they all pointed to you. Today, Lord, we heard about the rituals and how they signified the need for your coming. Next week, Lord, we see the reality of all of that when you came. Lord, I'm excited to dig into that portion of your scripture and see how all this comes together. But I thank you, Lord, for all who are here today. I pray, Lord, you'd finish this message in their hearts and minds. Lord, especially if there's one here who is or doesn't know you, I pray, Lord, they surrender their life to you. And Lord, if they're here today and they want to draw closer to you and feel that need, feel that drawing, that desire to be closer to you, and they know you and have trusted you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray they would realize that that veil has been torn down and they have access to you and fellowship with you and can worship you as you intended. Help us, Father, to remember that, to meditate on that, to fill our minds with that, and to live it in a way that brings you honor and glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.